Father, first, I would lift up to you the veterans who are serving currently, the ones who are putting their lives on the line, the ones who are sacrificing times from their family, their children, and their parents. I would ask that you'd bring them comfort in the necessities that they always maintain in the forefront. I pray that you would meet those according to your will and do so abundantly, Lord. Protect our men and women who are on the front line, both in the air, on the sea, and on the ground, wherever they may be. And Father, we express to you our gratitude for those who are willing to sacrifice everything. And for those who have, may you bring comfort to the families who are left behind. And Father, we understand we have a glory that awaits us, for there is no greater love than giving your life for your friend. And so many have done that. So, Father, we thank you for the veterans. And also, Lord, we had lift up to you our brother and friend and his whole family, Dustin, who needs to make a decision on what to do. Um, I pray that you would just fill him full of wisdom, give him verses that lead him in the path that you would have him take. We thank you for the blessing that he has been and for your word. Yes, you would bless your word as it goes forth. May it accomplish everything it is meant to. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take a seat. We are currently in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, and we left off, I think it was in somewhere between verse 14 and verse 18, and we're going to pick it up back in verse 14, and this has to do with the disciples of John asking about fasting. Both the disciples of John and the Pharisees were in the habit of fasting. And a lot of times when you just talk about fasting, the only thing we know about fasting is that it is something you do where you withhold food. Well, it's much more than that, than just withholding food or even water for a particular time. But I want to read the passage here, and then I'll go on to expand on it a little bit. Verse 14 In Matthew chapter 9, it says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So we have a couple of metaphors here that Jesus answers with. He doesn't just give a direct answer. He doesn't say, well, this is why we're fasting. We fast and we don't fast because X, Y, or Z. He doesn't explain it like that. And often Jesus would answer in kind of a cryptic language where you have to figure out what he is saying, you know, when he talks about the vine and the branches and uses that metaphor and he talks about the kingdom of God is like, like what, a pearl. What What is he saying? And so it is necessary that we go and we figure out what the scripture says. Now I'm just going to take a little side note here. It is necessary that we study to show ourselves approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. For the past two weeks, I've been talking to Omar. You're familiar with Omar. 
But Saturday, I came home, and guess who's coming out from my front door? Jehovah Witnesses. <clears throat> Just as I pull up, they're, they're coming out, and I know these two guys. One is Tim, the other is Clay. And I've talked to Tim several times. And, you know, we kind of joked back and forth, and they appreciated that I was able to talk to them without yelling at them and calling them names. And they said, thanks, you know, at least we can have a discussion here. I said, yeah. And so I, I said, you know, I have a question you've never answered. I'm turning to Tim. And he goes, okay. So I go right to my truck where I have my New World Translation. I pull out my New Tr- World Translation, which is their Bible. I open it up. And I start asking him some questions about the deity of Jesus Christ. And they gave me a couple of different examples of why they don't think Jesus is God. They think he's Michael the archangel. And I took them to Hebrews chapter 1 all the way through verse 8. I took them to Isaiah chapter 44 verses 6 through 8. I took them to Revelation chapter 22 verses 12 through 16. I quoted to them Titus chapter 2, 13. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. I told them that in their diaglot that they used to hold to as the Jehovah Witness organization, the Watchtower organization, the diaglot used to say in John 1, 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the indefinite article a God was not there and the guy Tim said yeah I have the diaglot at home I said go look at it it says it in there and you guys have changed it you've changed it where Jesus was called God he goes well I know the author of that diaglot and he really didn't believe that Jesus was God I said but look at the text it doesn't matter what we say it matters what the text says it doesn't matter what we believe It's what the text instructs us. And so we started talking about a little bit more about the deity of Jesus Christ. And I said, you know, in Proverbs chapter 30, Jesus, the son was there in Proverbs chapter 30. And they said, well, you know, God created Jesus Christ in the beginning and then he created everything else. I said, really? He is the exact representation of the father. And they said, well, he can't be the father. I said, no, he's not the father. And in John, I think it's John chapter five, it says that we're to honor the son just as we honor the father. And I said, how do you honor the father? We honor the father by worshiping him, right? I said, and you're supposed to worship Jesus Christ. They said, well, you can't take the word honor and change that to worship. I said, no, I'm not doing that. It's the word honor. And so I'm, I'm dividing the scriptures with him. I give, and I told him, I said, I have given you at least six scriptures on the deity of Jesus Christ. And you've come back and told me that he's Michael the archangel. And then they turned to a portion of scripture, which is poetry. And one of the rules in interpretation is you never interpret poetry literally. It's always a metaphor or it's always a simile or it's always, it means something else. And then we started talking about the earth. I said, you know, I believe that we go to heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. You believe that we're going to be here on earth and this earth is going to remain forever. And they said, well, yeah, it says that in scripture. I said, it says in the scripture that this earth is going to remain forever. And he said, yeah, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, I think it's around verse 5, it says the earth will last forever. And I took him to Peter and I took him to the book of Revelation. It says where it will be destroyed with a fervent heat. And I said, do you see that? there?" And I showed him the columns in the Bible. I said, you see this here? This is in a narrative form. When it's in a narrative form, you interpret it literally. 
I said, I'll bet you $100 right now if you turn to the passage over in Ecclesiastes, it's poetry. I said, you never interpret poetry literally. And you know, right then, I saw Tim go, oh. I said, you know what else? I said, according to your doctrine, I get a second chance. If I don't believe the way that you believe, I get resurrected. God comes to me and says, would you like to now believe? And I'll say, yes. I said, so if I don't choose your way, I'm still good. I'll be in like Flint. But I said, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 says, it is appointed another man once to die and then face judgment. I said, there is no second chance. I said, what you do in this life matters. And all of a sudden, I, I could just see it. The word of God was starting to work, and they were kind of falling silent a little bit. And I went on a little bit more of a nice rant. You know, and I, I even told them, I said, please don't let my passion be misinterpreted that I'm just angry at you guys. I said, I, you know, I love God's word and I just want to give it to everybody. I want to make sure we know the truth. And they said, well, you know, he goes, Bill, I've been to your house several times. I said, well, not often enough. I said, you need to come back over and we need to talk about these things. And, you know, and we have a good working relationship, quote unquote where they'll come over and I can talk to them and I'm not argumentative with them. That, that is the idea behind interpretation. They were making a mistake in interpreting the scriptures. And I even asked him, so what are your rules for interpretation? And he says, well, it's just making a comparison. I said, no, it's much more than making a comparison. I said, is it a pericope? Is it a midrash? And that's not something in the middle of your body. Is it a narrative? Is it poetry? Is it a metaphor? Is it a similitude? What is it that you're actually reading? And I was able to give them a little bit of instruction. I want you guys to pray for Tim and Clay, that they would come back on a weekend. And I'm going to invite them in the house. I even invited them in the house for coffee. I said, come on in. We'll sit down. We'll have some coffee. And we'll talk about these things. And it's just the planting of the seeds. And that's what we need to do. So when we're reading something like this, where he talks about, new wineskins and what do the new wineskins mean and he talks about the bridegroom and the the attendants of the bridegroom they're there you have to understand first the historicity of what it was like to be married as a jew now what would take place is a couple a, a boy or girl they could be set up early in life you know they may not even be teenagers yet they could be five or six years old and the parents get together and say you have a good son over there he looks so strong and healthy for a five-year-old and the guy says well your daughter you're a very pretty girl i like your daughter well how about we make a deal have you guys ever seen teddy fiddler on the roof your daughter if you've never seen it, you have to watch it, how they do it. They kind of set it up where these kids get married while they're older in the movie Fiddler on the Roof. But you'd set it up, and then they would be later betrothed. They're not married yet. This is what Joseph and Mary were. They were betrothed, but they had not had the ceremony yet. But they were as good as married. They would have to get a writ of divorcement in order to break that betrothal. And so you know you're going to marry this particular person that's kind of like us. Are we betrothed? We are betrothed to Christ. There has to be a writ of divorcement. The only problem with that is we have the Holy Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing the things which are to come. There is going to be no divorce. That's the way it is. If you're saved, if you're truly saved, you're saved forever. You're not going to lose the salvation. And so with that, if you had a betrothal period, then the marriage would take place. The buddies, the friends of the bridegroom, 
the bridegroom would have to go and build onto his father's house. Usually it was kind of a compound where the father would have this house and then the kids would grow up and the kids would build another room onto the structure that's already there. Then the new bride would come live with the son of the father who's in the main house. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go away to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Jesus is building a house in his father's house, so to speak. With that, the bridegroom's friends help him build. Amen. Uh, you know, the Sabbath, I can't work. But on Sunday, the first day of the week, you guys want to come over. You know, we'll have some matzah and some fish and you know, olive oil and, you know, balsamic vinegar. It's all going to be good, you know, and they'll come over. Now, I don't know if that's Jewish accent or Italian. I have no idea. But they would, they would all come over and they would work on this house. They'd get the structure and they'd be real excited, you know, and getting this thing done. And they said, we were putting the roof on. Hey, Joseph, it's almost time, huh? Yeah. It's almost time. That's right. He's thinking about his bride and all of his buddies. They'd probably go by the market and take a detour by her house and go, you know, whistle. That's not really how they'd whistle. Something like that. And she'd come to the window, hi, you know, be waving. And this is how it would take place for the marriage, the marriage ceremony, the preparatory time. And these guys, they'd go back and forth and then they'd finish the house. Now, when they finished the house, they'd kind of keep it a secret from the bride and her bridesmaids, and they could come at any hour. And so when they knew it was getting close, because obviously the bridesmaids would talk to the boys that they would also know that were about the same age. So how far along is he? Well, he's close. It could be any time. And so then they would spend the night over at the bride's house, the future bride, and they could come in the middle of the night. Sometimes they wouldn't. They'd bring the torches and they'd be singing. And they'd be walking down the road and they'd be screaming and yelling. And probably people along the way, they would know that it was happening. And the women would open the windows or the doors and and they would, they would know that it's coming. Now, how do we know when Jesus is coming? The voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God. That's going to happen before we get whisked up to heaven revelation excuse me first thessalonians chapter 4 about verse 17 first corinthians chapter 15 verses 15 and 51 it talks about the rapture of the church also it talks about i think it alludes to it in isaiah chapter 26 almost the whole chapter talks about the end times and how we're to be taken away and hidden in his chambers for a little while until his wrath is passed by i mean it's in scripture several different places that we're going to be expecting jesus christ the trumpet call of god and the voice of the archangel. Those are the things we're going to hear. So just like the bride would hear the bridegroom and all of his attendants. And during that time, they're eating. They're having a great time. They're building this thing. And they're not fasting. That's why Jesus goes to this example and says, when the attendants are with the bridegroom, we're not fasting. The bridegroom is right there, but there will come a time when they will fast. So that's what Jesus is talking about. They have all that understanding. We have none of that understanding here. Now, Patty and I are going through the process. One of our daughters is getting married, and it's nothing like that at all. Absolutely not even close. I wish it was. 
you know, it'd be great if my future son-in-law was building a house and uh, you go at it, boy, give me money for my daughter, you know, that type of thing. But it's not taking place like that. So we have to understand the context in which Jesus is speaking here. And then he also talks about the new wine and the wineskins. And I'm going to get there, but I'm going to touch on fasting here first. So with fasting, the scripture is pretty clear about what fasting is and what it isn't. It's the act of total or partial abstinence from food for a limited period of time, usually undertaken for a moral or religious reason. Religious dicta, or like law, or saying, or dogma, concerning fasting ranges from Zoroastrianism, which forbade it. You can't fast, don't do it. To Jainism, guess what they said? The greatest thing you can do is fast and die. I I don't make, I don't know why they would say anything like that, but those are the extremes when it comes to fasting. I think somewhere right in the middle is probably pretty good. And it's the withholding of food and or water, sex, or sleep. All of those things. If you return to, um, you don't have to do that, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 4, I'll give no sleep to my eyes. In other words, you withhold sleep until you get something done, until something is accomplished. The, the, uh, I think it was Esther. They did not eat or drink water for three days. I don't know about you, three days without water? Talk about cotton mouth. I mean, it's going to be a terrible time and no food. You are going to be physically depressed. You might be spiritually lifted up, but physically depressed. Now, fasting, Jesus practiced it. John the Baptist and his disciples and the Pharisees practiced it. We already read that. The nation of Israel practiced it. Moses did, Nehemiah, Ezra, King David, the Acts of the early church in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, it talks about that, where the Lord said, set apart from me, Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them to and they fasted and prayed as a result of this call now the purpose of fasting why you would say so why are you fasting it could be for a national crisis like for instance if you have family up in Paradise Valley I, I don't know if you've seen some of the pictures of that buses by the wayside children's school buses burnt to a crisp I've seen two pictures of two cars the, the taillight was completely melted out of the car and the side of the car was baked because they were driving through the fire to get out. Two cars like that, the back um, lights were burnt out. If you have family up there or maybe you don't have family, you just have a concern for them, you're praying because there is a disaster or the shooting that just took place. There is a disaster and we should be grieving over that and we start to get numb when these things take place, these disasters, well, if there's a national crisis or if there's a call to repentance, this was common in the uh, book of Job, the Old Testament minor prophet. If there's a personal crisis like David when he slept with Bathsheba and the child that was conceived as a result, the Lord said he is going to take that child to be with him. The child was going to die and David had a personal crisis. He had sinned. And so he was trying to show God that he is sorry for what he had done. A sign of mourning like the death of Saul. The entire nation of Israel fasted and prayed and mourned and repented because Saul the king had been killed. If there's a matter of grave seriousness, and this would be in the book of Esther, you know, the entire Jewish race was going to be wiped out. And Mordecai, her uncle, and both her and Esther and him were 
fasting and their attendance because the evil Haman wanted to take them out. And it can also be used for seeking the Lord for protection. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 3, uh, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord, and he fasted because he didn't want to uh, be overtaken by his enemies. It's also to humble oneself for the hand of the Lord and his blessing to come. These are all the reasons listed in Scripture why somebody would fast. It's also just an act of worship. You know, it's like, it's like giving of your money. That's actually an act of worship to do that, where you give money. To pray is an act of worship. To sing is an act of worship. To fast is an act of worship. It's also to seek help from God. Several examples of this. Second Chronicles chapter 20, or David when he was facing his enemies in Psalm 35 verse 13. It's where he put on sackcloth and he humbled himself with fasting. And when his prayers returned to him unanswered, he's going, Lord, please answer me. And so these are the reasons for fasting, to show repentance or remorse, or it may avert God's judgment. You guys know of Nineveh? Nineveh, the judgment was averted on Nineveh because they sought the Lord. They prayed, they prayed, they fasted, and they repented. And also in making decisions and implementing decisions, like ordination, you know, Paul and uh, Barnabas, when they got appointed, they fasted over them. And I'm sure they fasted as well to make sure that they were doing it in accordance with what the Lord wanted. And so to apply all this, what about for us? Should we be fasting? Yeah, it should be a part of the Christian's life. It's like we just read in Matthew, there's a time to fast and there's a time to refrain from fasting. When the bridegroom is with you, you don't have to fast. But if there's a personal crisis, it's probably a good idea to fast. Maybe the Lord will be gracious and he'll answer your prayer. And by the way, fasting is not meritorious. Where if you fast and you say, now God has to answer me. <laughs> no, he doesn't have to answer. You know, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate, the gracious, gracious God, he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion. This is where Moses was put in the cleft of the rock and he called himself out by name. He, he called himself the Lord and he called himself compassionate and he'll have compassion on who he wants to have compassion. So we cannot force God's hand. It, some people would think, well, if I'm acting in a holy fashion, then God has to let me into heaven. No, he doesn't. He only lets you in because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he will fulfill his word in promising to do so. And you go to heaven when you believe in him. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. By the way, side note, I was talking to the JWs, the Jehovah Witnesses. And I turned to Tim and I said, Tim, so how do you get saved? And he goes, well, you know, it's like living a good life. And I said, that's not what scripture says. And the men know this. The men know this scripture that we've been meeting. I would call on one of you to do that, but I, I'm not going to do that yet. We'll wait for the future. But I turned to him and I said, no, that's not what Scripture says. And I'm being passionate. And I said, please don't misunderstand my passion for, you know, I'm angry. I said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. And with your mouth you confess and are saved. I said, that's how you get saved. And they tried to take me to another verse, you know, that those who do the will of God will be saved. And I'm going, look, man, it even says it in Acts chapter 16, verse 30. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you and your household will be saved. And again, it was kind of like, 
you could tell it's the word of God that pierces, dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. And it wasn't me. It was, it was the word of God that was going out. And so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful we're going to have this other meeting. But I digress. Fasting should always be coupled with prayer. You don't want to fast and look how skinny I am now. You don't don't want to do that. And you don't want to go up to the people and say, I'm fasting for the Lord. You know, just pray for me. It's really hard. If you're fasting for the Lord, you know, in Scripture, and, and I've used this illustration before. When I was growing up, we had this tube. And this tube was black, white, and had a little red in it. I also had this bottle from time to time. And you'd pour it into your hand, go like this, put it over your hand like this. You look good, right? You look in the mirror, you look good. The other one was Brill Cream. Remember Brill Cream? Comb that hair back here to the side. And I remember even the motions doing that type of thing. <laughs> and God said, you know, if you're fasting... Put some oil on your head. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the brocrine, the vitalis, whatever you would use back then. Little aqua velva, old spice. You know, you pour that stuff on by the gallon. And it, nobody's supposed to know that you're fasting and you're supposed to do it secretly to the Lord. Now, I've mentioned this before. Let your wife or your husband know you're fasting. You know, they fix this big meal. Come and eat. No. Why? I can't tell you. No. You... <laughs> You tell them that's fine, but you want to conduct your life like no other day is different. And so that's how the Lord tells us to do it as believers. And the fast should be between you and the Lord. Matthew chapter 6 verse 16 says this, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men that they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Fasting should be coupled with confession. Fasting should be an act of worship. Fasting is not meritorious, as I've just said. We're not to focus on the self-righteous work. That's not why we're fasting. I'm holy under the Lord. That's why I fast, because it makes me holy. No, Jesus makes us holy. It's not the works that makes us holy. Fasting does not ensure victory over the flesh. Now, some people think this. You know, if I just treat my body poorly, I'll get, I'll be a champion over my flesh. It's not true. You know, your flesh always resurrects after you eat. If you've ever gone on a, a fast, all the smells that are out there just intensify. If you're driving, like there's this one place I take care of, and every morning that I am there comes the smell of fresh Baked bread. Oh, yeah, you know that smell, right? And it's just wafting through the air. And they're like, I'm like following this. And, you know, that's not even when I'm fasting, when I just smell that. But when you fast, it is twice as intense. Or you start thinking about food. And guess what comes on the television if you're watching television at that time? It's this big juicy burger that's just oozing out the sides and that's what it's like you know when you when you engage in a fast like that and it can be difficult but it doesn't give you power over that desire when you're fasting it actually causes you to suffer scripture even uh, directs a point towards this colossians chapter 2 verse 23 and it's talking about those who 
treat their body harshly. It says, such regulations indeed have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgences. And that's the sensual, the five senses that we have and anything that the flesh desires. It doesn't do a thing treating your body harshly. It just trains you to deny your flesh. What did Paul say he does to his body to make it conform? He punches it, metaphorically. He punches his body. I could see him walking down the road fasting and he's talking to himself going, no, you know, like this separate personality telling his body, you will not have power over me. But of course, he wasn't always successful either. Read Romans chapter seven. The things I want to do are not the things that I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So I don't want you to misconstrue what fasting is all about. When you fast, you suffer. That's the way it is. And you might say, why would God want me to suffer? Doesn't he want me to be blessed? Have you ever heard the phrase, you're blessed through suffering? Maybe not. There's a lot of churches that are teaching, God doesn't want you to be persecuted. God doesn't want you to have a rough life. He doesn't want you to have trials. I'll tell you, that's from the pit. You know, it has been granted to us as a privilege in Philippians chapter 1 to suffer for him. Now, I'm not going to stand up and say, okay, sign me up. I'm not, I don't want to be a part of that like that. If the Lord brings a trial for me, okay. You know, I will endure it like a faithful servant. At least that's my goal. That should be all of our goals is to suffer for a righteous cause, for a righteous sake, or a righteous thing that God would have us do. Fasting should be accompanied with a pure heart and proper actions. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 58, verses 1, and you can read it later, 1 through 14, it talks about a proper fast that is in there. And you can read that on your own. But all of those things are necessary for us to have a good fast that we should be practicing. Now, how often? Remember I told you last week, there was only one time Jews were required to have a fast. Now, some of the leaders would come along and say, I'm declaring a fast for today. Everybody's going to fast. They would do that. Uh, our president could say, you know, I'm calling a day of fasting and prayer. He could easily do that. And we don't have to do that being under grace. But in the Old Testament, may cut you off for the, cut you off from the people if you didn't participate in things like that. But we're under a different, quote unquote, dispensation. Now, with that, Verse 16, going back to Matthew, in chapter 9, it says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skin will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskin will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. So he's talking about the same thing. Excuse me. The same thing. For those of you who quilt, my grandmothers both used to quilt. There's a quilt in one of our beds at home, maybe two of our beds <coughs> that are there. And uh, uh, my son, my son still has his quilt that my grandmother made for him. I, I don't know, he's five or six years old. He still has it blanky. And his blankie's in his room, and it has leopard print on one side, and, it's, and on the other side, it is the quilt. And it's, I, I know it's dear to him. But when you put all those patches together, if there's some newer cloth and some older cloth, guess what you get? You get a little tear. 
and you have to go back and you have to fix it. Well, the same thing with wineskins. And now why is he talking about old garments, new garments, sewn together, old wineskins, new wine? Why is he talking about that in the context of fasting? See, we're supposed to ask questions of the text. Why is that? that what does wine have to do with fasting? Not much, because you wouldn't be drinking wine. What does cloth have to do with fasting? See, he's talking metaphorically here, and we're supposed to figure it out. We're not supposed to just read these stories and say, well, that was a nice story. He wants us to gain understanding of what is taking place here. Now, he's talking about a new thing. He's talking about his disciples not fasting, even though the disciples of John do regularly fast, and I think their motives were pure. The Pharisees, they had ulterior motives where they thought it brought self-righteousness. And he's going, no, I'm doing something new, something new that neither the Pharisees nor the disciples of John have yet understood. There's a new time to fast and a new time to refrain. There's going to be a new work taking place. And I'm not going, Jesus speaking, I'm not going to go back and use these old ways to do it. He's talking about, and I'm going to use the word again, a new dispensation, or some translations call it a new economy. It's where God deals differently at different times throughout history. For instance, before the fall, when Adam and Eve are frolicking in the garden, eating whatever they wanted to eat in the garden, did God treat them differently than he treated the Jews under the law? He did. Was there any sacrifice? No. There was no sin. So God treated Adam and Eve differently. Then when they sinned, things changed. God treated them differently. When Noah came along, what was the thing that changed in the time of Noah? Capital punishment came in. If somebody takes a man's life, his life shall be taken. That's what instruction was given to Noah. And Noah was a man of sacrifice. After that, you have Moses come along. Did things change from the time of Noah to the time of Moses? I was reading in the book of Numbers. Actually, I wasn't reading. I was listening to it. And a guy was in the wilderness, one of the guys in the 12 tribes of Israel. He was in the wilderness, and it was the Sabbath. And he went outside and goes, you know what? I'm going to add my own little commentary here, if that's permissible. He went outside, and he goes, you know what? I need some wood for a little fire. So he walks around and he's picking up little branches. He's walking around picking this one up and picking that one up and somebody sees him picking up branches on the Sabbath. Their hair went on fire. They grabbed this guy. They would do the equivalent of incarcerating him and they went to Moses and they said, Moses, this guy was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. Moses inquired of the Lord. The Lord said, stone him. Take him outside the camp and stone him. Because no work was to be done on the Sabbath. And I I go, whoa, that is harsh. And that was different than the time of Adam and Eve. And God said, you will obey. That's what it was all about. And the Jews constantly disobeyed. 
14,000 die in this plague because of disobedience. 24,000 die in this plague because of disobedience. They're complaining. You don't like manna? Well, you're going to get some quail. And it came out their noses. They ate so much for 30 days until they were sick of it. And they were constantly, I'm sorry, God, we repent. And then they would go to their old ways again, just over and over. And God treated them differently than us. Imagine if God treated us the same way he treated the Jews back in that time. There'd be a lot of dead people. I'd probably be one of them. I'd be picking up sticks on the Sabbath. You know, so the, this idea that God works differently, well, he's going to work differently in this new covenant that's coming. It's the covenant of grace or the dispensation of grace. That's what we're under. For instance, it's not our job as believers to condemn. It's our job as believers to instruct, to encourage. Guess who's going to condemn? Jesus Christ the judge of all, will come and he's going to handle it differently. So this new thing is coming along. Jesus did not come to patch up the old system of Judaism. Jesus came to create something new. Old Judaism was inflexible due to the traditions that were added to it, let alone the law. It was ritual, rigid requirements of the law and they're not fit for a new covenant. And so Jesus is making reference through fasting about another subject that is coming, and it's the new covenant. A new system will not work in the skin of an old system. To give you an example of this, in our country, we went from a monarchy to a representative republic, and there are those who want to make it into a democracy, but democracy leaning towards fascism. These changes, if they come along, we're not going to be treated the same. We're going to be treated differently. Now, there's some other examples of this. Martin Luther in the Reformation, he went against the Catholic Church. Because he did that, there was a change. Martin Luther, this young pastor, a priest, went out on his own because he was forced to. He wanted to make some change from the inside, but it didn't work. You can't make change from the inside like that. Now, we, as a church... You know, I, I hate to say it, I'm, I'm always open to changing things, but we're pretty much set in stone. We are. And if God wants to do something new, guess what he has to do to me? I have to be taken out and somebody else has to come in. Because that's not the way we used to do it, and I, I hate that phrase. And so if something else new comes along, I want to be flexible to do whatever God wants to do. But most of us in here, if something changes, get, get a load of this. What if I take off for three weeks? No, no, no. Again? Yeah. No, 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 no. Don't. Don't, don't do that. We don't like the change, right? <laughs> it, what, the style of worship that we do. What if I changed it? What if I said no musical instruments, all acapella? The sheep ears would. What are you doing? I mean, it would be a problem. We are kind of set in stone the way we are. And every generation has something new. Take history of the church. You have the church which began in Jerusalem, right? They were persecuted. They went over to Antioch and the church from there spread. And then eventually the Catholic universal church split into two. You had the Orthodox church and you had the Catholic church, the Eastern Orthodox church. They're up in Russia right now. And they have been the same ever since the beginning. And they tout, we have been the same since the beginning. Well, there's a lot of problems in the beginning. And those problems had to change, like being saved by grace through faith. That was a Johnny-come-lately doctrine. 
the rapture of the church was suppressed in the beginning, but now it's coming up different. And because of doctrines like that, there are new denominations. If still you go back, then you had the Reformation with Martin Luther saying, you know, these indulgences are bad. There needs to be a change. So a whole new section started. It was the Reformation. Then after the Reformation, there was this debate between uh, uh, Whitfield, George Whitfield, and also John Wesley, and it ended up becoming the Methodists and the Wesleyans. And one was reformed, and one became, quote-unquote, Arminianist. And so there was a divide that was there. And then from there, you go to the Azusa Street uh, revival and the Great Awakenings. You go through that, and there's another change. And then you get into the Pentecostal, the Holy Roller Movement, so to speak. And that's taken another branch way off over there. Then you had Calvary Chapel, and then off of that came Vineyard. And now there's all these other churches springing up, and you have, I don't know, you name the churches which are out there. And so when God wants to do a new work, he divides it up and go, oh, it's so sad. No, it's growth. God is reaching other people. Now, are there are problems with each split. <laughs> yeah, there are. Our church is perfect. But every other church, there's, <laughs> there's a problem of some kind that they're dealing with, getting too much into the works of the Spirit and too much into orthodoxy, cold orthodoxy, which is out there. There's always going to be problems, but God always raises up somebody new. When I started this, I was kind of new, 33 years old. You know, only four years ago, he started up and, and, and you see how it works. So God has to raise up somebody new and that's okay. That's good, you know, for that to happen. And Jesus is telling the Jews and the disciples of John, there's something new here and it's going to be good, but it's not going to come without birth pains. And so we have to keep that in mind. And when Jesus is talking about fasting, yeah, there is a time of fasting. We learn about all of that stuff. But God wants to accomplish something new. May we always be open for that and not just say, no, it's the way we've always done it. It's the right way. I will judge everything that comes along that's new by Scripture. If it's not in Scripture, I will either say nay, or if it's in Scripture, I will say yay, this is good. Or if it's in the realm of freedom where God doesn't speak to it, I'm going to say yay. Let's go ahead and do this. So may we ever be new, walking in the Spirit, ready for a change that God may want to make, and it's all good. It is not bad. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how you instruct us in learning about something new from a torn piece of cloth sewn to a new one, from an old wineskin and new wine. Father, may we always be open to what you want to do. We thank you for the goodness, the direction, the stability that you provide for us. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because it has enough worry all of its own. But Father, we'll trust in you for all things, mostly for our salvation. And we thank you for that precious gift. And may you use us, those who study, Lord, to reach those who are lost. May they have the same gift that you have given to us, May they possess it in full. In Jesus' name.